0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the Old Testament again, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. 42. I've often reminded you, and I do so again this morning, that the Bible is one long story. It's not a a bunch of vignettes that are disconnected, but rather it's one long story of the promises made by God to his people and the subsequent struggle that exists between God and his enemies, particularly Satan, to keep those promises that God has made from being fulfilled. Bible teachers, Bible scholars, if you will, don't prefer the word promise. They prefer the word covenant. There's a reason for that, but you'll hear a lot of Bible teachers, and particularly in certain church traditions, use the word covenant a great deal. And they will remind you that God is a covenant-making God. That he made a covenant with Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And he made a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 8. A rainbow is a symbol of that. He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He made a covenant with Moses in Exodus 24. He made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. There is, accordingly, there is a reason why covenant's probably a better word, and that reason is simply that a covenant usually implies that there are obligations on both sides of the agreement. We all contribute, as it were, to the agreement. God promises to us, and we promise to God. But I remind you that we live in a struggle. We live in the midst of a struggle. Our struggle is not fundamentally against people and earthly kingdoms, but rather our struggle is fundamentally against principalities and powers in high places that we don't even comprehend. And yet the Bible tells us that this is the higher or more accurate reality. We are in a more difficult circumstance than any of us really know. But in the midst of that, we are reminded that our God is greater than our enemies, even those that are very close to us, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. In other words, we have enemies that are foreign and domestic, And we contribute to our own demise. In other words, we break the covenant of God again again and again and again and again and again by our unfaithfulness. Isaiah, the book that we are reading these days, is a book about God's people breaking covenant and facing the consequences of that brokenness before God and then waiting for God to intervene to rescue them. And we do the same. This is a recurring theme in Scripture, that God is faithful to his covenant and his people are not and we are in a long line of covenant breakers you may be thinking that this issue of the faithfulness of God as regards keeping his promises is a settled issue with most Christians in other words that people believe that God always does what he promises but I can confirm to you that much of my pastoral conversations have to do with people's disappointment with God. They don't believe he keeps his promises. Or they're confused with the timing of God. God may keep his promise, but he's way, way too long in doing so. Or they're outright disagreement with the plan of God. God may keep his promise, but he does it in a way that I don't agree with. And I reject God because God is not... Listening to me. You may find yourself in that situation today. You may be disappointed with God because you don't like what God has brought into your life or allowed to come in your life. You think God should protect you from the brokenness of this world, that God should protect you from terrible things like cancer or the adultery of a spouse or the loss of a loved one. It seems that we read the Bible, and we read these promises, and we imagine how it's all going to work out, and we quote these promises to ourselves and to others and even to God as if they are get-out-of-jail cards, and then they don't turn out to work that way, and we are blindsided. In the nitty-gritty of our lives, we are disappointed with God. There are many people, I dare say, in this room and watching via live stream this morning who are disappointed with God. And if you're not disappointed with God yet, you probably will be in some way. So for many today, faith is hard because life is hard. We live in a struggle Life is even harder when we believe that our God has blown it or that he has failed to keep covenant. All of which means that people here today are going to say that God promised and that he's not keeping his promises, so I'm out. I'm out with God, and I'm into whatever I choose to replace him with. And some choose bitterness, and some choose apathy, and some choose rebellion some choose idolatry some choose just all kinds of other sinfulness so i would say to you if that's your situation today you've come to the right place because the bible has a word for you and i trust it will be of help to you if that is your situation today i want to begin by telling you there is a possible alternative understanding to your facts you know, we all, we all know that you can get facts to say whatever you want them today, right? I mean, statistics are malleable. You've got your statistics, and you've got your statistics, and I've got my statistics, and pretty soon we've come up with seven conclusions, and none of them are the same. They're all mutually exclusive, and we're all looking at the same criteria. Just take COVID virus as an example. That's all we need to say about that, but there's no end to conclusions and hypothetically we're all looking at the same set of statistics. So I want to suggest to you that just because you think you know what's going on in your life doesn't mean you really know. The reality is there are micro events in all of our lives. Micro events. And some of them are more micro than others. Maybe last night you slept wrong and now you've got a bad back because you slept wrong or you've got a crick in your neck because you slept wrong and you say well that's not a big deal but you're going to walk around all day today like this and you're going to say that's a big deal to me and just that one little thing sets you on a path that leads you To discouragement or at least general unhappiness and the rest of us are gonna find you exceedingly hard to deal with all day long we wish you'd go back to bed and get that straightened out but that's a very small thing but the point is it it does affect us doesn't it and there are other things that are if you will on a growing scale that we must contend with in our lives All of which brings us to the Bible. The Bible is going to talk about the fact that we are blind. And it's not that we don't see something, but we don't see what God sees. So, in that way, we are blind. And God spends a great deal of the scripture opening our eyes, not to what we think is the truth. But what is the truth? And he's telling us to step back or look at it a little differently or to understand things in ways that we never have. He asks us to think more nobly, noble thoughts, higher thoughts, or to think with a deeper understanding, to, to look deeper under the surface of our lives and our circumstances. And to realize that there's something going on here. And ultimately, all of these things say the exact same thing. God has not forgotten you. Even though it hurts. Even though your neck is still bent. Even though your circumstances are a thorn in your side. Or a struggle every day. Or the, if you will, the engineer of great pain and sorrow in your heart. Even though life is hard, even though you live in the midst of a struggle, even though there is a war going on in places that you don't understand, God says, Trust me, I have you in the palm of my hand. I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing it for you. For you. And so that brings us to Isaiah 42 isaiah 42 looks to the future you remember that chapter 40 in this 66 chapter long book is a bit of a transition chapter 40 begins a forward look a predictive look it looks more than a hundred years beyond the life of isaiah to the time when israel is in captivity when the babylonians have come in when isaiah is alive that hadn't happened he's writing these things down as he sees the future god gives him this prophetic gift so that he might share it with israel so that they might be helped when in the midst of their pain down the road they can read this and they can say ah in the midst of my sorrow in the midst of my difficulty in the midst of my loneliness in the midst of my feeling forsaken by god i am not forsaken thank you god for the book of Isaiah, for the challenges and comforts that are found here. So he's already told them in chapter 41 that we read last time that God is going to rescue them. He's going to use not the Babylonians to do it because they're the ones that took them off into captivity. He's going to rescue them by raising up the Persians. So the Persians, led by a king named Cyrus, are going to come and they're going to overthrow the Babylonians and Cyrus the king is going to decide I don't want all these folks these folks from that nation and that nation and that nation and that nation the Babylonians like to collect peoples the Persians just want to send them all home we want your dirt we want your gold we want your cities but we don't want all those slaves send them home so they go home Nehemiah leads them home Ezra Describe, he teaches them. And they begin to sort of recalibrate their hearts for God. But in the midst of their captivity, they can read these chapters. Today we read Isaiah 42. So in the midst of uh, chapter 41, he has come to the end of it, uh, and he's mocked the idols of the world. They're living in the midst of Babylon, and Babylon's an idolatrous nation. and There's all these idols, and you'll note that he mocks them again and again. Uh, verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Bring your idols here, your little statue. Let's ask your statue what's going to happen. Anybody here know what's going to happen a year from now? Anybody, you're, uh, ask these idols what's going to happen five years from now, 10 years from now. The truth is they can't talk. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, they can't hear. Tongues, uh, noses, they don't smell, et cetera. these idols look like speaking gods but in fact they are not they can't help us they can't help you so he mocks them in chapter 41 and then chapter 42 is a hard transition and notice what he says as he begins verse 1 chapter 42 behold we've been talking about these idols now behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I'm telling you the future before it ever happens, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Have you ever noticed that in the midst of our lives, we have a tendency to become dull, to things that perhaps in the past were precious, we we, we might use terms like I, "I became bored with that," or "I moved on to something else," or "I got distracted." We use those terms in our spiritual life as well. We'll say we need revival because we become apathetic. We need to be reminded of who God is and what God does. And, We need to see the power of God, the fire of God. We need the spirit of God to fall upon us. This is all typical terminology for church, for Christians. And the reason we talk like that, because it's true, because we grow cold. We grow distant from God. Maybe during COVID, you've grown exceedingly close to God. Praise God. But many have grown distant from God. Church has been a challenge Fellowship and intimacy with people has been challenged. Confidence in the power of God and the glory of God and the grace of God and the wisdom of God and the counsel of God and the scripture, so forth. All these things perhaps have been a challenge for you. Not suggesting that to criticize you. I'm suggesting to say that may be where you find yourself. To which I say, what are you going to do about it? Well, I would tell you that Isaiah 42 is a roadmap. For your soul. Here's what you can do about it that would actually be in keeping with the pattern that we see in the scripture. Think about these people. They're the people of God and they've become disconnected from God. That's the reason why God brings in, as it were, the heavenly hammer known as the Babylonians. Why did God allow his people to be deported and taken as slaves to Babylon? Because his people had grown cold toward God. They began to embrace these idols of the cultures around them. They began to be, be, they became worldly. They became uh, less passionate about God. They found themselves distracted, wandering from God, not connecting with God, not connecting with the people of God. And God said, I'm not going to put up with that. And he warns them and he warns them. And he does it over centuries. Read the scriptures. From the time of King David through Solomon and then through the kings, ultimately to the final straw that falls in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians come in and said, that's it, we're here, we're taking it all, taking you too. God has warned them and warned them. He said, prophet after 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 prophet. prophet prophet." And they just routinely wrote them off, ignored them and said, you know what? We're happy in our apathy. We're happy in our complacency. We're happy in our distractions. We're happy in our idolatry. We're happy in our worldliness. And God said, well, I'm not happy. And he dealt with it harshly. I'm not suggesting God's preparing to do anything like that. I am prepared to say, however, that God hates our apathy as much as he hates theirs. It turns out that God is not happy with apathy or complacency or disconnect from Him. God wants us, rather, to long for Him and love Him and trust in Him and hope in Him. But some would say, well, what we need to do is just be more religious. We just need to all get back to church. Well, you don't know anybody who wants people to get back to church more than me. But I'll tell you, the problem is not outside of man. The problem's always inside man. Your problem and my problem are what's inside us, not what's outside us. So these folks are in captivity and they begin to do what people do when they've got nothing but time on their hands. They begin to think and examine and inspect and they begin to do a deep dive into their lives. And God says, in effect, in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant. You see all these gods, these idols that you're running around with or that, that are, are all around you? I, I, I want you to know they are powerless. They are worthless. Let's ask them a few questions. Let's test them. Let them tell us the future. They don't talk. They can't give us anything. Let me tell you what, what's going to happen. Behold my servant. The reality is you need a you need a rescuer. You need one who's going to come on behalf of God. You need, you need the hand of God. You need the, the man of God. In this case, the servant of God. Now this is a very important term in Isaiah. He's going to dedicate six chapters in sporadic intervals over the rest of this book from 42 all the way to 66 six chapters are going to be dedicated to this servant he is not clearly identified in chapter 42 but because we have the advantage of the rest of the book we know who he is his name is jesus he is the servant who's coming We know this because this has been the plan of God all along. Even though we've made covenant or broken covenant with God, God made promises or entered into covenants that he plans to keep. In Genesis 12, he told Abraham he would make him a great nation and that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, how do you bless the world with a nation that's in captivity in Babylon? If you're a thinking man, you say, that's impossible to bless the world with a nation that's now a bunch of slaves. But God promised he would do it, to which he says, behold, my servant. In Exodus 34, God told Moses that he will do for his people would, that which would not be done anywhere else on earth, that he would make his people this premier people. You say, well, how is God going to do that with this little obscure nation of Israel? Well, we have the advantage of the rest of the book. We know how God's going to do that. He's going to bring his son into the world, And he's going to, through his son, send the gospel beyond that piece of dirt in Israel. And he's going to send the gospel to the four corners of the earth so that ultimately, at the name of Jesus, people from every tongue on earth shall confess. People from every tribe on earth shall confess. Every nation on earth shall confess. It's not just that little geopolitical entity known as israel but it's the higher israel that god intends to bring praise to the glory of his son and he promised moses that he would do that in exodus 34 in 2 samuel 7 god promised he entered into covenant with david and he told david that his descendant would occupy the throne of the people of god forever forever Now, how do you tell a man who's just a man who's going to die that his descendant will be on the throne forever when all he's known in his life is war? There's a threat there. 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 How can this be secured? I'll tell you how, friend. God's not going to put... Just a mere man on the throne of David, he's going to put the God man on the on the throne of David. He needs one who has the power of an indestructible life. To quote Hebrews, the only way that works, the only way that promise comes true, is not if he puts a guy named Solomon on the throne, or Solomon's son, or Solomon's grandson, or Solomon's great grandson. He's not looking for a man because the problem with all of us men is we die. None of us are indestructible. None of us are eternal. The only way that promise comes true is because there's something else going on here that our little micro understanding doesn't get. I don't know what God's doing in your life today. You may feel alone, you may feel forgotten, you may feel lost some way and you need comfort you need assurance you need help you need you need what God has been reported to be willing to give you Jesus said as much Matthew 11 come to me all you who are weary and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest if that's what you're looking for I say again behold my servant because God is going to send his servant and his servant is going to do many wonderful things. Just three things very quickly. Notice in verse one, behold the servant of God, the servant whom God upholds my chosen. Notice these descriptions that he uses. Just look at the first few verses of Isaiah 42 He, verse 1, he has the Spirit of God. Verse 1, he's committed to justice. If you're sick and tired of all the wrong in the world, listen, your only hope is one who's committed to justice. And that person is the God-man, the servant of God. Verse 2, he will come humbly. He will not come to cry aloud or lift up his voice Or make it heard in the street. He will not come to call attention to himself. He will come humbly. The servant, verse 3, will be tender with the weak and the wounded. A bruised reed he will not break. Think think of a a, a stalk that's bruised, that's weak. It's got a weak spot. It's been, been bruised. That's not a strong plant. That's a plant that's given toward bending over or even breaking. And Jesus is going to be so tender that even a bruised reed will not bend over after he deals with it. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Even the disadvantaged, a faintly burning wick, a candle as it were that's about to go out he will not quench it he will not extinguish it he will be tender with the weak and the wounded verse 4 he will come and he will finish the job he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law the nations wait for this one behold the servant of God Verse 6, he will be a light for the nations in keeping with God's promise to Abraham. He will be a light for the nations. Verse 7, he will open the eyes of those who do not see or do not understand. This is the will of God. This is the way of God, and it's accomplished by the servant of God. Let me say that differently. You might be tempted to say, Jesus is not my answer, to which I say, why? Why would you hold to such a view? Why would you reject Jesus? Because clearly the Bible declares him to be the answer. You say, well, he, he has not met my expectations. He's not come to my aid. I'm sure Israel is in the Babylonian captivity. We know that captivity lasted 70 years. If you're in year 50 of 70 years, you're probably a little discouraged. If you've been putting up with this for 50 years and the end is not in sight, does that give you a pass to say God is a liar, that God doesn't love me, that God doesn't know what he's doing? If you're Daniel and you got carried to captivity, no fault of your own. By the way, Daniel's a very righteous man. Would you agree? He ended up in Babylon just like the unrighteous. He said, well I'm righteous and I ought not to have to walk this road whatever that road is well you may get me to agree with you but I'm not the servant and I'm surely not God I'm not the one who has perfect wisdom who understands the macro things that God is doing in your micro circumstance I don't know but I know this that if you feel like that God has forgotten you, that's a lie. Because Isaiah 42 says, Look a different direction. Behold, my servant. You're not looking to my servant, you're looking at something else. Maybe you're looking at those little punk idols that showed up in Isaiah 41 that we mocked and we put them to bed. They don't possess any power. Instead, look to my servant recognize my servant he has the spirit he's committed to to justice he'll walk humbly he'll be tender with you when you're weak and wounded and he will finish the job he will help you with your understanding He'll give light to the blind so they may see and understand i don't know all that god is doing in our day but i know he's doing it because that's what god does and he calls us to behold his servant i'll tell you something friends Our fundamental problem is that we have lost sight of Jesus. There's much that can be said here. We'll move along. Notice in the second stanza, if you will, of Isaiah 42, verse 10, he says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, that the inhabitants of Salah sing, let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. You know what ought to be said of God's people today? This. My, that's a people that will not be moved. My, that's a people that, that, that never change their tune. My, that's a people that no matter how hard it gets, they praise. No matter how lonely it gets, they praise. No matter how many times they have to go to jail for Jesus' sake, they praise. No matter how difficult their life is, no matter how hard the government makes it or their friend makes it or their culture makes it, no matter how difficult their circumstances are that they have to walk through or cancer or rejection of this or heartache of that or the loss of a loved one, no matter how many times they have to walk through this, my, those people, they stay on tune. They don't leave the music. They're constantly praising God, even though they're encountering hard, hard, hard things. You see, the world says if you experience these hard things, reject the God who didn't protect you from that. But the the people of God in Isaiah's time are encouraged, return to God. Return to God. Don't reject him. And when you return, return joyful return singing praise god for the fact that he is bringing us home home may not be next year two years from now three years from now five years from now home may be 70 years from now and home may not even be in this world But the message of Isaiah 42 is, behold, my servant, because he's going to bring you home. No politician's going to bring you home. We don't need a Cyrus or a Cyrus wannabe. We don't need to be a Nebuchadnezzar or a Nebuchadnezzar wannabe. We don't need a politician. We don't need a military man. We don't need an economic solution. We don't need a scientific solution. We don't need any philosophical solution. We don't need any of that. Ultimately, our hope is in God. And our help comes from God. And our dependence is on God. And if there ought to be one thing said about this church. And every church like us. It is that we will not be moved. We will cling to God. We will hope in God. And as Job said, yet though he slay me, I will not curse him. I don't know what God's calling you to walk through. I don't know how far, how lonely you feel, how difficult your circumstance. But I assure you, friend, the answer is not far from God. The answer is near to God. So run to God. There's another thing he says in the next chapter. I'll just read it briefly. Notice in chapter 43, he appeals to his creative work. He said, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name. You are mine When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. And then this very precious word, verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Behold the servant of God. Why does Jesus do all this? And the short answer is simply because he is God, and God loves us. God is at work in our lives to bring us home, to redeem us, to rescue us, to deliver us from captivity, deliver us from the sorrow and sadness of this world. And he will do it for many of us through the fire. Many of us will escape, as it were, several hard things in this life but many of us will not but we will all nonetheless be brought home we will all nonetheless find our way because God will get us there he will secure us home and the reason he will do it is because we are precious to him this is a great promise and God has promised this to Israel and he kept his promise and he promises it to us let me remind you of something in the context of Isaiah 41 42 43 this this context in the sixth century BC they're looking forward some 600 years 500 years before Christ they're looking forward to the coming of the servant now we are not looking forward to that coming of the servant we are in the 21st century since the coming of that servant we're looking back and we're saying yes all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus he is the servant thanks be to God but there is an unkept promise yet outstanding and that is that Jesus said as you see me leave I will come again and I will claim you my people for myself You believe in God believe in me in my father's house there are many mansions many dwelling places there's room for all of you turkeys if it were not so I would have told you so and if I go I go away to prepare a place for you for you the problem is this isn't home and we keep acting like it is we keep hoping it's gonna be But we're pilgrims we're passing through we're gonna live our 70 or 80 years and then we fly away and he promised he would come again he would take us home and we would be safe and secure and we would be in the company of the one who is indestructible we won't have these yahoos claiming to be king who are not at least not in the vein of Christ behold My servant, the one who's going to make all these promises come true. There's only one who can do that. He's come, and he's coming back. And we need to live like the people who believe that. Because that's what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things unseen it is the conviction of things yet undone do you believe do you hope in jesus do you know this servant <laughs> i was reminded of these words in hebrews 12 therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. Consider Jesus, the founder, perfecter, the author, and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and today seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews' way of saying what Isaiah 42 says. Behold, my servant. Look at him. He's the one. He's the one that will get us home. I hope you know him today. I hope you're looking for him. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your servant, the Lord Jesus, the one who comes the one who came and the one who comes again. Thank you. Oh God, we need you to help us in the midst of our lives. Many here today, Father, experiencing great pain, great sorrow, great loss, great hardship, great difficulty. Lord, we live in a very tough environment. And yet, in the midst of that, you've called us to Celebrate to, to, to be joyful, to be thankful, to, to hope in Christ, to recognize that no matter how hard it is, our God is great, and our God is coming for us. No matter how lonely it is, our God is great, and our God is coming for us. No matter how difficult it may be, our God is great, and our God is coming for us. Lord, help us to know And to follow your servant. Nothing else will satisfy. We're looking to you together as a congregation this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.